Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Before we hit the road again this week... I came across something in my online travels I thought I'd share. Now, we've talked about a pretty wide range of horror subgenres over the years here at Tales to Terrify. From movies to video games, myths to true crime. Hell, we've even shared a cookbook with you. But National Geographic's new TV series, Dead by Dawn, is the first time I can remember stumbling across a nature documentary specifically billing itself as horror. It only makes sense, I guess. Regular old nature, after all, has conjured up creatures so terrifying and places so eerie that it puts many of the best imaginations in our genre to shame. As I'm sure you can guess by the name, Dead by Dawn focuses on the life-and-death battle nature wages every night after dark. Now, I don't know if I would be comfortable actually calling this horror. Aside from showing a little more of the gruesome side of nature that series like Planet Earth seem to avoid, and incorporating some audio and visual elements commonly used in horror, it doesn't stray too far from your typical nature documentary. But, as you'd expect from National Geographic, the production quality is top-notch. There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. But for now, if you're all packed up, let's head back to the highway, shall we? This week, we find ourselves further south from where we began. As we travel through the countryside of North Carolina, there's a stop I'd like to take you on. Venturing deep into the woods of Chatham County, near Harper's Crossroads, we stumble across what appears to be a simple break in the forest. 
At first glance, it looks like any other clearing you might find in the woods. A pretty inviting place to set up camp for the night, actually. The ground is open and flat, with no weeds, shrubs, or stumps to get in the way. In fact, there's no real vegetation of any kind in the circle at the center of the clearing. If we did decide to pitch our tent and spend the night in this particular clearing, though, it's possible there would be more than just ghost stories to make your blood run cold. According to local legend, there's good reason why no animal will cross the clearing and why nothing has grown in this 40-foot dirt ring in a hundred years. It's a favorite thinking spot, they say, for the devil. On dark, moonless nights, he rises from the depths of hell and paces as he devises devious new ways to manipulate and torture the human race. The devil's tramping ground, and name the spots acquired for pretty obvious reasons, has built up a pretty unsettling reputation through the years. One story I came across involves a group of Boy Scouts who, either bravely or foolishly, decided to set up camp in the clearing overnight. I imagine they built a roaring fire in the center of the circle, roasted hot dogs and marshmallows, tried to one-up each other with scary stories that felt all the more eerie given their choice of campsite. Then, as the fire began to die down to glowing embers, and they couldn't fight the yawns and drooping eyelids any longer, they turned in, zipping themselves into the safety of their tent. But their sleep was fitful. That was probably just a breeze rustling the fabric of their tent. But it almost seemed like someone moving about out in the darkness. And was that faintly whispering voices from the forest, just at the edge of hearing? Or just the normal sounds of the night made more terrifying by the night's creepy tales? Probably nothing, but they couldn't shake the feeling that they weren't the only inhabitants in the clearing. Eventually, though, exhaustion won out, and they were each dragged down into sleep. It seemed like only moments passed, but soon the sun was rising, lighting the sky and sending warm rays filtering through the dense canopy of trees to illuminate the tent. The boys began to wake, rubbing sleep from tired eyes, and emerged from the tent, breath misting in the chill morning air. I imagine the sight they emerged to would have taken them a moment to process. The circle was gone. In fact, the whole clearing was gone. Now, if they were any good at being Boy Scouts, I assume their survival skills would have eventually kicked in and led them to a singular conclusion. They weren't anywhere near where they had fallen asleep the night before. As it turns out, the fully intact tent, complete with gear and sleeping Boy Scouts, had somehow been transported miles away during the night without waking a single inhabitant. While a tent full of Boy Scouts is certainly the most impressive, tales of other items being transported out of the circle are one of the more common activities noted at the Devil's Tramping Ground. If you were to place an item in the circle at night, 
you're likely to find it thrown back out of the circle by morning. And really, is it that surprising? If this is the devil's favorite thinking spot, how's he going to pace around with a bunch of camping gear and other crap in his way? It seems litter isn't an evil the devil's prepared to put up with. Let's hear some fiction. We have one longer story for you this evening, which comes to us from Darren Lavaz. Darren Lavaz writes dark fantasy and horror. A graduate of the Odyssey Writing Workshop, Darren lives with his wife and their three children among the stony hills of New Hampshire. When time permits, he wanders the spaces between the trees and picks up the stories he finds scattered within the shadows beneath the littered leaves. Those he doesn't toss back sometimes make it onto the page. You can find him online at darrenlavaz.com. Children of the Night, join me for Darren Lavaz's A Touch from the Deep, a Tales to Terrify original. I first became aware of her at the captain's welcome, but know now that I had seen her before, glimpsed her in the least, and have forever desired her, or something like her. She'd stood in the atrium as I'd boarded, and had smiled at me as I'd passed. I remember that smile struck me, consumed me, really, and as I followed behind the cabin steward porting my luggage, I glanced back, but she had gone, evaporated in an instant and leaving only that smile to haunt me. I was aboard the River Pearl, a long, low riverboat cruising the Danube from Passau to Budapest. It was late September, and the winding banks of the lower Wachau teemed with the harvest. It was my third trip to the region, but my first during harvest, and I was eager to sample the newly pressed Federweiser and stroll the medieval cobbled streets in hopes of catching a fleeting glimpse of an old-world ghost, or perhaps something yet more fey. The captain's welcome fell on the second evening of the cruise. It was a private affair for prior passengers held in the forward lounge. Located on the highest deck, the softly lit lounge afforded a marvelous, near-panoramic view of the Danube Valley as it settled to dusk, and I sat daydreaming, watching the evening gloom slide into the valley. The region of Wachau at any hour of any season embodies the kind of landscape at which you can simply point a camera and win your local photography contest. But at autumn twilight it assumes an otherworldly and fantastic quality, one steeped in a palpable antiquity and punctuated by sentinel castle ruins that claw up from the hilltops to rake the bruising sky. As I watched the warm lights of huts and village inns begin to gild the cold, roiling black waters at their feet, 
I could imagine dark denizens creeping from their lairs to prowl the chill banks and stalk those caught out of doors with late evening chores. Some of our most enduring legends rose to epic proportions in these lands, and I, being the lover of the fantastic tale that I am, fell fully under the region's bewitchment as I sat among my fellow veteran passengers in the cozy fishbowl of the windowed lounge. The smell of my daydream broke as the captain stood to make his address, there were twelve passengers in attendance, sitting in a ring of chairs. The gathering comprised mostly couples, but for myself and for her, and at fifty I was easily one of the two youngest by no fewer than two decades, she being the other. She was standing beside the captain, having been introduced as River World's most traveled passenger, this was her twenty-fifth voyage with the company, and her ninth with this particular captain. The other passengers applauded politely, but the second most traveled couple at twelve voyages exchanged annoyed glances as she bowed to the ring of passengers one couple at a time, favoring each with her unique little smile. As she turned to me, her gaze lingered, capturing mine and for that brief instant the spell of the Danube began and sorcelled me. I felt suddenly awash, that no longer did I sit as a fellow passenger, bowed and smiled at from across the confines of a riverboat lounge, but instead that I swam in dark open waters, naked and exposed to the curious gaze of some alien and aquatic voyeur. So singular and enthralling was the sensation, as real as it was unexpected and disorienting, I nearly moved to cover myself, but instead managed to pass my glass of wine from one hand to the other, raising it in a slight salute, and so avoided embarrassment. She seemed not to notice, or else pretended to not, and raised her own glass in return. As her gaze danced to the next couple, I fell back into my thoughts to marvel at the peculiar notion that had swept over me like a tide. I concluded the book I was reading, a collection of Slavic Rusalka tales, was to blame, and I laughingly chided myself for being so damnably affectable. Later, as introductions concluded and several rounds of hors d'oeuvres and idle chit-chat had passed, she approached me. You're here with us now. Excuse me? You're here now. I watched you daydream earlier. Ah, yes, I said, embarrassed and again feeling oddly exposed. I'm here now. The scenery. I swept my hand to the windows, as though she wouldn't know what I was referring to, despite the panorama of glass. It captures my imagination. She nodded, seemingly in complete understanding. And of what were you dreaming? Of mermaids and water nymphs? And she winked. For a moment I stood mute, stunned by her comment. I'm... I'm sorry? 
She shook her head, dismissing the comment, and the stylish black wig framing her face vibrated stiffly. I'm only teasing, she said apologetically, and then, making a point to sweep her wide green eyes around the lounge, added, You're alone? I am, yes, regrettably. And you? Thinking I already knew the answer. Often alone, yes, though this trip I have a companion. He's at the bar waiting to go to dinner. She waved to someone over my shoulder, and my heart sank. I turned to see an elderly gentleman smile warmly at her. His age surprised me. He was easily twenty-five years her senior. He tapped his watch, and she smiled, raising a finger as though to say one more minute. He blew her a kiss. Your husband? I asked, hoping otherwise. She giggled, a little tinkle of a laugh like the first spattering of rain on glass. <laughs> no, my friend from an earlier leg of the cruise. I've met him before on other boats. Ah, my spirits rose. And he didn't care to attend the captain's party? No. He's a retired riverboat captain himself, says he can't stay away from the water, but he doesn't like parties. You should hear his stories. He's full of them. Do you know he once sunk his ship? No. It's true, here on the Danube, it made quite a mess. I can only imagine. Indeed. She stood smiling at me as though expecting I should say something more. When I didn't, she glanced at her companion and added, Yes, well, I should join him. I nodded. Of course, it was a pleasure. The captain had introduced her, but her name had already slipped my mind. It was different, foreign. Nanami, she offered her hand. Nanami. I took her fingers. Her hand was cold and smaller than expected, despite even her petite frame, but her nails were long and delicately manicured. And you are Jonathan. You remembered. Jonathan was my father's name. Hard to forget. You should join us for dinner. Are you at the first seating? No, second. Ah, well, good night then, Jonathan. Good night, Nanami. I did not see her or her companion again that trip. Although it was not for a lack of trying. The Moselle River slides languidly out of France, past Luxembourg, and into the Moselle region of Germany on its way to join the Rhine, its waters rolling with all the hurry and muster of a tomcat rousing from a nap to stretch long and luxuriously in the summer's sun. Of all the destinations I've visited, the Moselle holds my heart. The cobblestone medieval cities that cling to the rocky elbows of river bends, and the far-flung low-lying villages with their gabled half-timber houses enchant my fancy more than even the towering tombs of the pharaohs, or the vine-constricted temples of Cambodia, all of which I have wandered in search of something other.
It was my fifth trip to the valley, and a late December snow lay upon the river banks, mottling the hills in dusty patches of gray and white and brown. From its chill perch in the blue above, the afternoon sun gleamed and flashed along the water as the river emerald sliced northward on its way from Trier to Berncastel, en route to Cochem, Coblenz, and ultimately Cologne. The region's Christmas markets were full in swing, and despite the threat of frigid toes and numb toes, the cruise was fully booked. High tea was in service in the forward lounge when I arrived to find Nanami standing and talking with the cruise director. I hadn't seen her on the trip prior to this moment, but I wasn't surprised. Somehow I'd always expected to see her again, or perhaps had hoped to. She changed her hair. Instead of the stylish, straight black wig she'd worn at our first meeting that had framed her face so well, she wore now a new one, longer and of a bronze hue, bound up atop her head in a half-bun with a trailing tail beneath. Different, yes, but a good different. It lent a youth and vibrancy that complemented her complexion. I liked it. For all that, however, I might not have recognized her if she hadn't turned fully at the moment I passed, and her gaze not caught mine. It was those eyes, green and deep like living waters, that ensnared me, and I instantly felt a wash in a sensation similar to that which had swept over me at our encounter a year before. The sensation was brief, gone just as quickly as it had come, but its impression lingered. She smiled, that same consuming smile that had haunted me from the first, and resumed her conversation as I continued past and made my way to the service table. It wasn't long before she stood beside me. Jonathan! I had just accepted a cup of Earl Grey from the waiter, and my back was to her. I turned... Nanami. Her smile widened. You remember. I made it a point to when I saw you. Your notebook, she said plainly, referring to the pocket journal I carried in my travels. She had surely seen me reference it. Ah, yes, you've caught me. I have. But please don't be embarrassed. I'm happy our first meeting made enough of an impression on you to record my name. It did. Uh, you, you did. I thought your name unusual and very pretty. I wrote it down. Nanami stood smiling, saying nothing, and hugged the voluminous sweater she wore more tightly to her chin, despite the warmth of the lounge. I stared silently, my tea still hovering on its saucer in my hand and felt the first real pang of unadulterated attraction, dare I say craving, stir within me. It wasn't that she was beautiful. She wasn't. Leastwise, not in any conventional sense. There was, in fact, something odd and remotely disquieting about her appearance. Her face was a broad, flat expanse that tapered from a wide brow to a narrow, delicate chin— 
framed between two loose bronze tresses that fell in expertly curled corkscrews from her wig, her eyes were spaced seemingly too far apart from the compressed bud of her nose, this being shockingly small, as though overly reduced in some surgical mishap. Together with the forced angularity of her features, the general effect lent something of an alien, almost repellent quality to her visage, and I was reminded so very strangely of a horned toad, or perhaps a turtle, as odd as this may sound. But her smile, that tantalizing little smile, had bound me. To say it improved her features would be inaccurate. True, it worked to plump her cheeks to bright mounds, lending some slight bit of a curve and contour to her otherwise blunt face, but it was more but a promise that made it so captivating, so enthralling. It was a flirtatious smile, wide and narrow, but there always peeked a hint of tongue, just a tip at the lip, and a glint of tooth holding it back. At first glance it seemed demure enough, perhaps a touch coy, but after only a few moments would become seemingly more wanton, as though some glamour of innocence melted away to reveal its truer nature. Indeed, the longer I studied it, the more it seemed a rapacious invitation, a promise of exotic and tantalizing feral pleasures. And the more certain I became that this was its true nature, the more it evinced a brazen, carnal appetite. And this aroused a similar predatory hunger within me. "'You've been to the Moselle before?' she asked." turning to select a cucumber and cream cheese sandwich from the buffet before accepting her own cup of tea from the waiter. I shook my head and drew a sharp breath, returning again to the moment. I... I have, yes. I love the region. We moved to a small table and each sat down upon a sofa, facing one another. Nanami looked out the window. So do I. She took a bite of her sandwich and sat for a time watching the abandoned tiers of pruned grapevines roll by as she chewed delicately. Swallowing, she sighed and looked back to me. These European rivers, they speak to me, she said. They're so unlike those where I'm from, so different. She lifted her tea and blew gently across it. I followed suit trying now to appear casual, despite the thrillful little throbbing of lust residing in my chest and loins. And forgive me, you're from somewhere in Japan? Your English is clear, it's difficult for me to tell. Yes, Japan. My mother and I both. Some other heritage clearly colored her skin, but what it was I could not discern. Mediterranean, perhaps? And your father? Dead. Nanami sipped her tea, holding the cup before her lips in two hands, and watching me from over the rim. I smiled tightly and nodded, letting the matter drop, and hoping I hadn't offended. Nanami replaced her cup to its saucer and reclined on the sofa to regard me. 
tell me, Jonathan, she said, studying my face, does the Moselle make you daydream like the Danube? Is it as enchanting? I shrugged sheepishly, embarrassed that she remembered me as a daydreamer and likely not as a potential, what, lover? Is that what I hoped? I've never been a confident man, I confess, at least not in love or sex. I dream of romantic encounters in much the same manner I dream of hunting mythic beasts and slaying villains. It's why I chose my books, my stories of vampires and werewolves and lumbering homunculi. They give me both the sex and the adventure, safely. And my wanderlust? Were I to be honest, I tell you my wanderlust arises directly from my lack of confidence and from the desire for something more. That is both a hope and a wish that while somewhere out there in the world, someplace strange and different where nobody knows me, I might for once be someone different. Someone who acts like a character out of a story, who takes risks, who steps out of a shell and seduces a woman and is never again alone. Yes, I said at length, choosing my words with care, it does arouse my daydreams. We stared at one another for a moment, me feeling suddenly vulnerable and exposed from my choice of words, and she just watching. Eventually, after what seemed an excruciating eternity, she lifted her tea, sipped, and then spoke. So tell me, what is it then that you dream this trip? Of more mermaids, perhaps? I chuckled in spite of myself at the memory. Yes, of Lorelei, I suppose. We'll soon be on the Rhine, after all. We should find her there. True. So, Lorelei specifically, then? She asked, arching an eyebrow. The tip of her tongue peeked again from her smile. And I became someone different. Someone bold. No, not Lorelei specifically. There, there's you. Me? Yes. My heart thudded a tattoo on my chest. You. She sat down her tea, beaming. Why, Jonathan, I hadn't taken you for such a bold mariner. I felt suddenly ashamed. I, my life, I began, stopped, resumed, has been timid. It has impeded me. And you would like to make a change. I said nothing. Nanami's wide water eyes stared into mine. My heart continued to thump a distant rhythm in my chest. I would, I said at last. Nanami flashed an impish little grin and sat back. We have many legends of water spirits in Japan, you know. Not just mermaids, but other things. Though I think you would find most of them too brutal for your tastes. She paused as though expecting me to inquire further. I didn't. 
I'll take your word for it. The subject changed. I felt the other me slipping away again as she chatted on. I began to feel stupid. Then I'll spare you the stories, she replied, continuing. They're not pretty. The rivers, though, she sat back, her gaze distant. Those you would like. Some would say we have only waterfalls in Japan, and maybe that's true. But our rivers are lovely, beautiful. I love nothing more than the sound of their waters, of any water. That's why I travel. She continued explaining how she wished to see and hear every major river of the world and as many of their tributaries as she could manage before they were all polluted and ruined. This last struck me as strange, but as she went on to explain that the river outside her mother's village had been much polluted, I began to piece things together. Her mother had fallen ill, had died young. And so Nanami had set out in pilgrimage to honor and remember. It was a sweet motivation for traveling, if not a touch sad, though surely more healthy than mine. As we chatted, I noticed the first mate, a German of impressive build, standing in the entrance to the lounge, watching us. How long he'd stood there, I couldn't say, but my impression was he'd occupied the periphery of my vision for some time. I regarded him as the Nami continued to chat. There was something threatening in his stance. His gaze was fixed more upon the Nami than on me, and his glare was icy. At length he glanced briefly at me, and then up and beyond, whereupon his expression grew even more grim. I followed his gaze to find a sailor in a dark blue jumpsuit washing the exterior of the wide lounge windows. The sailor's face was a blank mask as he stared back at the first mate, but I could sense tension. The low whine of the wiper blade against the glass was more like a growl than a squeak as he dragged it slowly across the window, his eyes never wavering. When I turned back, the first mate was gone. Nanami seemed to take no notice of the incident and continued to chat idly, answering questions about herself as I voiced them robotically. She'd been an osteopath, but was now retired, though regrettably not by choice. It seemed a subtle tremor had crept into her hands, the result of some unnamed and gradually debilitating affliction, the same she feared as had crippled her mother, and she was no longer able to perform surgery. When pressed with my sympathies, she assured me retirement was by choice. While consultation remained well within the scope of her ability, she chose instead to travel. A person can learn volumes about themselves in a lifetime, Jonathan, she said, gesturing to my notebook, which sat on the coffee table before us. But why do it in one place when you can travel the world and fill those volumes with pictures, too? I smiled. Or dreams. Or dreams, she said, and again she smiled, that damnable smile. Join me for dinner this evening. The words came out in a rush. The strange me, once more. 
She paused as though considering. You're at first sitting? Second. This seemed to please her. Good. Then I will join you at second. There are too many old people at first, she said, her laugh tinkling. The only sound you ever hear is soup spoons against China. I'm starved for more lively conversation. A sudden clamor cut us short as we rose to say our goodbyes. On the deck, the window washer had slipped on the icy deck and kicked over his bucket of detergent. Sudsy water poured steadily over the edge of the deck. I caught Nanami's face as I turned back. Her expression was pained. Pollution, she said, catching my eye and forcing a now weak smile. But she did not join me at dinner and I was left to eat alone, having selected a table for two apart from the group of passengers with whom I usually dined. More than a little disappointed, and growing increasingly forlorn as dinner progressed, I ate little, eventually quitting the dining room and taking my melancholy up onto the top decks in the small hope of finding her out and about. The night was dark, and the air more than a touch chill. White stars pinholed the gloom above, gleaming with distant indifference as I made my way to the side of the deck to lean against the cold, hard rail. The water beneath slapped rhythmically against the hull, pounding the night silence as the black hills of the bank slid steadily by, unlit and foreboding. Pressed against the lacquered rail, I pulled my dinner jacket tightly, chiding myself. So Nanami had failed to join me? What had I really hoped? For some shipboard romance? Stupid. How could I have even dreamt such a thing? Because she'd smiled at me? And what? Suddenly I was some suave, sophisticated bachelor? Who was I kidding? There isn't a suave bone in me. I'm a bookworm, an awkward creature of solitude. How I ever thought myself capable of seducing such a woman, any woman for that matter, was beyond me. Ridiculous, really. In the end, I've forever been a loner, and the truth is, I like it that way. But then, why did I feel such disappointment at being stood up? On any other such evening as this, up on deck, alone under the stars, my imagination would be leaping, excited, and odd, and I'd spend hours telling myself stories and dreaming, but tonight... You should stay away from that woman. Startled, I spun, nearly stumbling back from the figure beside me. It was the sailor, the window washer. I hadn't heard his approach. What? The tip of his cigarette flared as he took a drag, carving his face in a mask of orange and black. I say she's trouble. You should stay away. His accent was strong, Eastern European. Trouble? Yes, a black widow. He bit at the words in disgust. Things happen to men when she's on board. Need doctors or go missing. You should stay away. I was stunned. You're not serious. 
Yes, serious. Always men. Always something bad. Always when she is here. I tried to wrap my mind around his meaning. How do you... What do you mean, go missing? Are you sure they didn't simply leave? Stay behind in some port? Missing. Leave boat. What difference is there? She is trouble. Stay away. Let first mate have her. He is asshole. He should go missing. I... I stammered wordless. I don't... You don't believe... But trust me, something bad will happen. You will see, but not to you. I like you. He shook a thick stub of a finger at me. You have traveled before on boat I work. Always friendly. Always say hello. Nobody else does this. So I remember. And so now I say to you, be safe. Stay away from that woman. This last he said with care and purposeful diction. I be safe, he repeated, slapping me on the shoulder as he walked past. She is trouble. That night I dreamed I was on deck, staring down at the perilous waters that raced below. Something, a figure or creature, kept pace beside the boat. Glimpsed only in brief, it surged and dove beneath the rolling surf, a noxious, pale form drained cold of color. Long, tendril limbs trailed alongside as it plunged and rose like some great repugnant worm spiraling through the inky, frigid green depths. I found I could not move, could not withdraw, could not turn away. I could only stare in mute horror as the thing drew frightfully close to the hull. A face, if face it was, broke above the foam and spray, revealing a bloodless flap of a mouth and a milky, bulbous eye that fixed its pupilless gaze upon me before rolling again beneath the ship's wake. I thought it gone, but once more the head surfaced, and where the dome of its skull should have been, I spied a hollow depression, sunken like a bowl. Briefly it raised this depression into the air. Water swirled within. Then it dove, and its ghastly, slithering form disappeared into the depths. I thought it gone, until, abruptly... A hand emerged, sucking fast to the hull, and now I saw the creature pressed like some abhorrent lamprey against the side of the boat. Slender, webbed fingers, impossibly long and taloned, splayed wide against the metal, and for one nightmarish moment I feared the thing would climb out and scale the side of the ship. But then it shoved away, propelling its invertebrate monstrosity back into the seething murk. A spiny ribbon of fin sliced briefly above the water, and it dove again, and was gone. I woke to a thudding heart and gasping breath, and my sleep proved fitful for the remainder of the night 
as outside my cabin window malevolent waters lap ceaselessly against the hull. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Nanami found me the next morning, standing on the street with my tour group, yawning. We were docked in Berncastel. The morning was brisk, but quickly warming. The thin scatter of snow from the night before was already leaching away, leaving the cobblestones wet, and here or there, slick. Our guide stood apart, mumbling in frustrated German as she attempted to tune her audio vox transmitter. Static crackled and whined in my earpiece, and I momentarily pulled it away as a particularly jarring burst set my eardrum to pulsing. Jonathan! I turned. Nanami was wrapped in a silvery overcoat and was hugging herself tightly. Her hair was different, again. Short tufts of silvered black sprouted from beneath a white woolen cap. She was shaking her head in regret. I am so sorry. You must forgive me. I missed our dinner. I shrugged, not meaning to be callous, but likely coming off as such. Think nothing of it. She slapped my arm playfully. I'll do no such thing. I am sorry, very much so. Her face showed as much. I came down with the most awful headache. My condition, it sometimes brings them on. I don't even know when I lay down or how long I slept. I felt suddenly like an ass. 
I'd gone to bed spitefully cursing her and now felt miserable for it. I'm sorry, that's, that's terrible. The emotion must have played strangely across my face, for she laughed. Oh, don't look so bad. I'm fine now. It's past. I feel good. Look, no shakes. She held out her hands and removed a mitten. The mild tremor she had shown me in the lounge was gone. Her hands were steady. See? Good as new. I... good. I relaxed, feeling better about myself, about her. That's good. I'm sorry we missed out, but I'm glad you're feeling better. Tell me how I can make it up to you. My heart soared. You can make it up to me. The smile, and damn it if I didn't feel myself grow a touch hard for it. Good, I will. She bounced slightly and then shivered and hugged herself more tightly. Must we stand in this miserable shade? Come on, let's move into the street. I need some sun to warm me up. We stepped off the curb onto the cobblestones, avoiding a patch of ice. Another tour group from our boat marched past, up from the docks and toward the inner part of the town, the voice of their tour guide playing clearly from the earpiece of each elderly tourist that shuffled by. One by one they shambled past, a zombie militia, with shoulders dragged down by long coats and feet plodding and scuffing within heavy winter boots, and the tour guide's voice droning ever over their parade. Nanami tapped her ear. They're all deaf, she said with a giggle. I arched my eyebrows and turned to watch them pass. You're in group two, then? she asked. I am, this group, I said, nodding to the gathered passengers milling about us. Good, me too. We'll tour together. Great, I said, stamping my feet at a sudden chill as the morning sun drove the last of the cold dawn from my bones. I'd like that. I turned to look at our boat. It sat low in the water, a long, narrow spear designed to slip beneath the bridges that spanned the waterways of Europe's rivers. Other than its control room, which could be lowered into the hull at need, it was flat and featureless, but for a solitary figure. Standing topside beside the rail, clearly silhouetted against the glinting morning sky, was the first mate. He was smoking a cigarette and staring in our direction. I returned the stare. The mate remained motionless as I watched, and again a sense of animosity stole across the distance to grip me. He was displeased. I could see it in the slow manner in which he raised his cigarette to his lips, in the long contemplative draw and slow exhale. It all spoke of a man smoldering. In jealousy, perhaps? Who could say? Nanami glanced back in the direction of my stare and shook her head. Ignore him, she said. He's always watching me. Why? I asked, still staring. Who knows? They all do. You do. I glanced at her and she winked. I cracked a wry smile. 
honestly ignore him. He's no one. If you say so. The mate flicked his cigarette overboard and folded his arms. Expressionless, Nanami turned and, slipping her arm in mine, began dragging me up the hill toward Berncastell Square. Our tour group had already begun the climb, and our guide, evidently having given up on her audio vox, raised her voice over the casual murmur of tourists as she guided us up into town. The region comprising Berncastell-Cus is believed to have been inhabited since 3000 B.C., in AD 370, Nanami hugged my arm tighter as we walked. Hmm, I'm getting warmer now that we're moving. You've been to Berncastel before? I have. It's one of my favorite towns. She glanced around us at the towering half-timber townhouses, decked in garland and festive ribbon. It's lovely. It really is, isn't it? I glanced back at the boat. The mate was gone. My earpiece squelched, and I flinched, yanking it from my ear. Those things never work, said Danami. Turn it off. Here, let me help you. She reached across me to unplug the headset from its receiver as I fumbled to untangle the cord from under my coat. As she assisted me, I noted again that her nails were strikingly long, yet elegantly manicured, and I wondered how she could maintain any dexterity given their length. But despite the nails, her fingers remained deft, and she quickly untangled and neatly wound the cord. There, put that away, she said, handing me the coil. Those things are a nuisance. Tell me about it, I agreed. She pulled away from me as we entered the square and turned as she walked so as to take in the full effect of the town center. The scent of chestnuts and mulled wine greeted us in a waft of warm air, and the sound of jingling bells and popping fires accented the merry chatter of vendors and shoppers crowding the makeshift holiday stalls. So lovely, she explained in awe. So picture-perfect. Straight out of a storybook. Isn't it? I replied, watching her turn around and around as she absorbed all of the old world splendor. I liked the way she moved, so graceful, like a dancer. You could never think she suffered some insidious malady that would someday hobble and cripple her as it had her mother. The thought left me with a brief moment of sadness that some day she'd no longer be the vibrant woman I saw spinning before me, that she'd in fact someday begin to suffer and then be gone. And for the life of me I couldn't bear the loss, though I hardly knew her. You should take some pictures, I said, in effort to buoy my spirits. Where's your camera? You said you wanted to fill your volumes with pictures. Right here, she said, tapping the side of her head, and then turning, caught me staring. What? she asked, a suppressed smile giving a demure lift to her cheeks. Nothing, I was staring. I'm, I'm sorry. The smile widened. Always retreating, my Jonathan. Always cautious. She returned to my side. You could stare. I don't mind. She peered up at me, and I down at her, studying her face, 
Her eyes followed mine, calm, verdant pools, wide and inviting. You're looking at my hair. I am. She shook her head. Don't. It's mine, my real hair. I don't like it. I cocked my head to the side, inspecting it. Why? What's wrong with it? Though roughly cut, as if it had been hacked away, it looked quite lovely, even cute. Sticking out from beneath her cap, the silver threads woven among the black were natural and suited her better than the uniformly colored wigs she preferred, or so I felt. Here, I said, reaching up, take off your hat. Let me see. At this, she pulled roughly away. No. I stopped, hand poised in the air, uncertain. She glared, her eyes briefly hard, and then, softening, shook her head. Just no. It's awful. I'm sorry. I don't want you to see it. I hate it. Okay, I nodded reassuringly, still taken aback by the abrupt, near-hostile change that had swept over her. I'm sorry, too. No, don't be. She drew close again and hugged her coat about her. No sorries. It's me. I'm, I'm sorry. She looked up at my face, her expression pained. I don't like my hair. It's why I wear wigs. Please let it go. We spent the remainder of the day touring, the incident forgotten, and she joined me for dinner that evening. The wig was back. This one was new, black with a sheen of blue to match the sapphire sequined dress she wore. Afterwards, we retired to the lounge for drinks. An evening's entertainment on a riverboat rarely amounts to anything more than sedate, which is much to my liking. A glass of single malt and a book are all the diversion I require, and the comedians and more raucous musical performances so common to nautical nightlife are better left to the larger, arguably more uncouth, cruise ships of the Med and Caribbean. When we entered the lounge, the onboard pianist was playing a light jazz number as several other couples sat quietly enjoying a nightcap, and at one table a game of bridge. Winding the empty chairs, we selected a table, sat and ordered. Soon our drinks were before us, and we relaxed quietly for a time, watching an elderly couple dance gracefully cheek to cheek. They're sweet, Nanami said, shifting to join me on the small sofa I occupied. They are, I agreed and we lapsed again into a comfortable silence. Out on deck, sailors began freeing the ship of its moorings in preparation to cast off for our cruise to Kochem. In the bowels below, the engines shuddered to life, sending a tremor through the ship that set the glasses on the bar to tinkling. As luck would have it, however, a day touring Berncastel, where mold samples from the local vineyards flowed freely and amply, seemed to have worked a summons upon the inner animal of remembered youth within our fellow passengers. 
Steadily they trickled into the lounge, stuffed from dinner, but eager to live a little, and soon the once tranquil room blossomed into a lively, animate shindig that clotted the dance floor with the awkward shuffling and strutting of exuberant elderly trunks. Nanami and I watched and bemused off for some time before she turned to me, her eyes wide. I shrugged. Do you want to join them? I asked over the din. No, she giggled, turning back to the throng of geriatrics bobbing on the dance floor. There's no room. Come on, I playfully pinched her forearm and she slapped my hand away. No, I might spill. Spill? She rolled her eyes and waved her hand, sweeping away her words. I, I might fall. Fall down. Oh, <laughs> I chuckled. Take a spill. Yes, take a spill, she echoed in mock indignation. Don't tease. She grinned, eyeing me from the corner of her eyes, and I smiled, happy with the moment, happy with her company, and feeling again like I was indeed that suave bachelor I earlier imagined myself to be. The room boomed, and as the merriment increased, the rising fervor transformed our usually reserved pianist. He began unabashedly belting out the lyrics as he read from his instrument's display while pounding the keys in time. His thick Croatian slurred the words to a comical gibberish that played perfect counterpoint to the ridiculous spectacle in full swing before us. Standing, he pointed an emphasis toward the ceiling as the raging rock and roll melody he performed banged merrily along, despite his having taken a hand from the keyboard. You the one that I want, he crooned exultantly. Voo, voo, voo. The one that I want. Voo, voo, voo. The crowd echoed this chorus, heads wagging and feet stomping. I simply stared. But for Nanami, the scene was too much. Her giggling broke openly to shrieks of delight as various performers tried their hand at remembered and likely some never-before-attempted dance moves. Their inhibitions stripped and shame hung away until morning. I laughed with her just as openly, but took greater pleasure from the frequent occasions in which she, seated close beside me, hugged my arm and buried her face in my shoulder as she shuddered with laughter. Sitting as close as she was, I could smell her perfume, a scent that seemed akin to lagoon waters, clean and fresh, and hinting of jasmine and earth. I felt the warm press of her hip against mine, the length of her leg, and the sharp knoll of her knee driving against me as she leaned close, laughing. Her heaving breath stirred my core, quickening my own breathing and arousing my desire. The touch of another slept distant and deep in my memory, but not so deep as to be forgotten or undesired. I'd simply rarely made love an actual pursuit, content as I was with my own company and devices, or so I told myself. 
But just then, with Tanami beside me, clutching and clinging gleefully to me as she writhed with laughter, at that moment the intoxication that wound around and about me like so many seductive ethereal ribbons bound me up like no other attraction ever had, and I suddenly found my solitary life to be an empty husk, and I craved nothing more than for her to pour in and fill it. Seeming to sense the shift in my emotion, Nanami withdrew slightly, turning her face up to mine. Music, motion, all of it evaporated, and the allure captivating me expanded and swirled, seemingly catching her up with it and drawing her to me. She inhaled sharply and leaned in, her bottom lip parting, her eyes closed, my own followed. Someone screamed. All at once the music stopped. Reality crashed in. The lounge erupted to a new and different commotion. People rushed to the window, pressed faces to the glass. There were gasps. A woman sobbed. The vibrations from the engines ceased abruptly, and I felt the ship lurch and drift aimlessly, tucked from the dock by the sluggish current. "'My God, it's a body!' exclaimed someone from the front of the crowd. I pushed myself up from the sofa, rising to join the onlookers, but Nanami remained seated, a mix of fear and stunned surprise upon her paling face. Her hand, which had clutched my own at the instant of the scream, slipped from my fingers as I stood. Entranced. I approached the windows, maneuvering around the crowd to find a better vantage. Out beyond the glass, a couple clung to one another beside the railing. The woman stood, face buried in the man's chest, clutching his jacket and scarf about her head and neck. The man appeared pale, transfixed on the grisly spectacle before him, his one arm around the woman and the other limp at his side. Several feet beyond, two sailors heaved a dripping, frosty bulk up onto the deck, but I could catch nothing more than a glimpse of dark blue as the crowd pressed closer, necks craning to gain a better look. Oh, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary! A man shoved out through the crowd, stumbling and ashen-faced. I recognized him as one of the more exuberant dancers, but that exuberance was fled, driven from him by the scene outside. He shouldered roughly past the man beside me, his hand clasped to his mouth. This other took little notice, and making no objection, merely listed aside, his gaze never once shifting from the scene beyond the glass, nor the look of shock upon his face changing. I pressed closer. Someone to the far left retched. Disemboweled, another muttered. Oh, Christ, he's torn wide open. The woman directly before me turned and rushed away. I pressed into the vacant space to see the body in a blue jumpsuit sprawled at the booted feet of the sailors. It was the window washer, the sailor who'd warned me against Nanami.
His face was a grotesque mask, twisted in an expression of perpetual agony. The skin was mottled blue and gray, waxy and chill. Vacant, frozen eyes bulged from their sockets, bloated and misaligned, their lids absent. So too were his lips gone, and the greater part of one cheek nibbled and torn away by river fish, or so I could only assume. Clenched teeth gleamed cadaverously from the frost-rimmed rent. I tore my eyes from the hellish grin. A leg of his jumper was missing, and from beneath a short shred of entrails spilled. The other sailors backed away and stared dumbly at the body. Moments later, the captain exploded into the lounge and rushed past the crowd and out onto the deck, the cruise director and an attendant at his heels. The captain barked an order, and the cruise director doubled back into the lounge. Snatching the tablecloth from the nearest table, he rushed again onto the deck, motioning frantically for a sailor to assist him. The two raised the cloth to screen the windows as the attendant shuffled the horrified couple on the deck back into the lounge. The curtain now dropped. The dazed crowd within the lounge turned away to stare at one another. Seized by a macabre fascination, I wove my way through the stunned onlookers, who now began debriefing their companions as to what they'd each witnessed. A blast of brutal cold air buffeted the door roughly as I pushed out onto the icy deck. The captain glanced at me, but returned to directing the sailors without so much as a word. The cruise director, however, slipping in his haste, scurried to stall me. Sir, if you please, just, sir. I ignored him and stepped aside, drawing closer to the body. At whatever he spied in my face, the cruise director let me pass without another word. The air was rank with the odor of sodden rot, and a chill deeper than that upon the night air clutched me as I approached. A sailor kneeled, unwrapping a tangled length of rope from the window washer's neck. The rope hung over the side of the boat, trailing in the water. Two more sailors stood at the ready, having only just arrived on the scene. One carried a heavy canvas and wished to wrap the body. They spoke in hushed tones with the captain. Must have gotten sucked up against the intake, said one. It'd have been enough draw to rip his guts from him. Perhaps, said the captain, his tone betraying doubt. But how did he get tangled in the lines in the first place? When did he go missing? The other sailors shrugged, their faces blank. Well, someone better find out. The captain turned away to shout something in Dutch to a man on the lower deck. Standing only a few feet away, I could now see the dead sailor plainly. The rope about his neck had been removed to reveal a purple ring of deep bruises and long lacerations that stretched up along his jaw and down onto his chest. 
While I had expected the bruising, his neck having been wrapped by a garrote of mooring rope, the laceration struck me as exceedingly odd. The sailor unwinding the rope evidently thought as much, too. Look at his neck. He's all cut up. The captain turned to glance at the body, then shook his head in irritation. And his guts are yanked out of his arse and face ripped off. You worry about his neck? Get that canvas under him and haul him off my decks. The police are coming, and I don't want them crawling all over, upsetting the passengers. Bring the body below. As if to underscore his orders, the faint distant whine of a siren broke over the water. The sailors began unfolding the canvas. The captain spoke into his radio, and moments later the rumble of the engines shuttered the deck. I stepped back to allow the sailors their space and glanced into the lounge. The body covered, the cruise director had stepped inside to soothe the stricken passengers. I looked for Nanami. She no longer sat where I'd left her. Stepping closer to the frosted glass, I searched deeper, straining to see into the rear of the dim lounge and saw her. She stood near the entrance with the first mate, the pair framed in the light of the hall beyond. They appeared to be arguing. He was leaning toward her menacingly, but she stood her ground, arms crossed defiantly. The mate swept his hand into the lounge, gesturing in my general direction, then spread both hands wide as though beseeching her for an explanation. Nanami merely glared. Thrusting an empty finger at her, the mate jerked his head toward the door and down the hall toward the bowels of the ship. Nanami shook her head, ever defiant. The mate reached out to take her arm. Nanami recoiled, her face livid. She slapped at his hand. I moved to intervene, but all at once the big German raised his hands in surrender and stepped back. His face appeared pained in the light from the hall. Nanami softened and placed her hand softly against his chest. Again the mate gestured down the hall, and Nanami reluctantly nodded. He turned, and she followed him out. I watched her go. She never once looked back. I stood leaning against the rail and peering off into the black icy water of the Moselle, long after the body had been removed from the deck and the police conducted their inspection. No one spoke to me. No one inquired. I remained unmolested as though I didn't even exist. Perhaps I didn't. I certainly wasn't aware I existed wasn't aware of anything other than black waters and thoughts of her. Nanami had left without so much as a word and with him. At any other such time, one would think I'd be preoccupied by the entirety of the events that had transpired that my imagination would be running rampant at the grisly death of the window-washer, of his strange wounds, that I may have begun to draw connections between his warnings about Nanami and his dislike of the first mate. 
of the first mate's open hostility toward him and seemingly toward me. How it was all so fantastic, a tale of potential murder and intrigue on strange foreign waters. But this wasn't the case in the least. I thought only of Nanami, of how she'd bewitched and then discarded me, abandoned the little bookworm in favor of the hulk of the first mate, the seeming story of my life. Surely not the story I'd been writing in my mind as the music had played. The memory of her smiling up at me as we sat so close beside each other in the lounge drifted up into my misery. Was she smiling that smile for him now? The thought enraged me. That ape would never see it for all its depth, for all that it promised. But I, I could read every line of it, read it as though it had been written only for me. It should have been written only for me. And why not? I've said I've never been a confident man. It's true that I've also never been a man of action. But in that moment, with the thought of Nanami smiling her smile for that miserable, brooding oaf, I chose to embrace a different me, the worldly, adventurous me, the hero of the stories I've said I so dearly love. And so I went below. Her door flew open at my knock. Nanami, I... Her kiss struck me like a fist to the mouth. I staggered, falling back with the weight of her in my arms, and I was awash, drowning, swept over and under by the sensation of her. Her mouth gripped mine, drew me in, drew me out. She tasted of salt, the sea, of life and deep waters, and I felt again as though I was plunged bodily into a cold spring. Every sense flared to awakening. My skin swelled and the scent of moss and dew filled my nose, the tang again of sea and salt following. Nanami clutched my face as she kissed me fiercely, frantically. I could feel the slight tremor in her hands. Her trembling mirrored my own excited, nervous quaking, as together we pressed and clung and kissed, consuming one another. At length she pulled away, grabbed me by the wrist, and tugged me into her cabin. The door banged shut. Inside the room was dim, filled with the sound of tinkling waters that chimed from a dozen bubbling fountains on the bureau, the side tables, the bedstand. For a moment I stood awed, bewildered, and then she was shoving me back onto the bed. I fell onto the mattress, and as her mouth found mine again, I was swept anew into the waking dream of surrounding waters. Warm waters, undulating waters, waters that rolled me, tumbled me like a doll in the passionate wrestle of their surf. Nanami tore at my clothes, pulling them free. Hers fell away, and her mouth latched hot on my neck. 
We rolled and I felt flailing from the bed. My arm sweeping the bedstand, sending its fountain and its lamp, all of its other articles onto the floor with a clatter and crash. Something sharp lanced my side as I landed, and she was on top of me, kissing me. Her hips rode up and then down onto me. I fell away into her, my back arching. Long nails gripped my shoulders as her palms pressed me down. The length of her collapsed against me as she surged and swelled, lifting and falling again and again against my body. In moments we were gasping, our breath heavy, wet. She cried out. I gasped. She fell onto me and lay still, chest heaving in time with mine. If I dreamed, it was not a dream I desired, nor wished to recall. The vortex was a swirling, swallowing void beneath the sea that pulled ravenously at me as I strained toward the surface so far above. When at last I fell, I fell tumbling, hurtling toward its maw, in a downward-spiraling maelstrom of nautical detritus, saved only in the last by the trident. Corroded and pitted, the color of dried blood, it erupted from the tarry black of an oily, slithering slick to pierce my side and drive deep. I cried out and woke. I was alone. Nanami was gone. A ghostly dawn paled the walls, gray and wan. I lay on the floor, wrapped in sheets, naked beneath. A dull throb pulsed from my lower abdomen just forward of my kidney. Rising to sit, I gasped as the throb flared to searing pain. Panicked, I tore at the tangle of sheets binding me and felt them peel from my skin like tape. They came away crusted with blood. I probed gently at an ugly welt and marveled to discover a stainless steel nail file embedded there. The skin burned as I pressed, but I was relieved to find the wound was only superficial. The file hadn't driven deep. Wincing, I yanked the gravelly spike from my flesh, and a fresh well of blood slipped down my side. I stood and stumbled to the bathroom. The light flickered to life, the bulb popping and tinkling as it warmed. No bandages or alcohol to be found, I cleansed the wound with hand sanitizer, snarling at the burn, and pressed tissues against the small pucker of its mouth. The bleeding soon subsided, and applying fresh tissues, I looked about for my clothes and dressed. There was no sign of when Nanami may have left, but my guess was she didn't intend to return. While her clothes hung yet in the closet, her wigs were missing from the half-dozen stands that lined the cabin's vanity, and her cabin key lay discarded on the bureau. Taking a last lingering look at her room, I turned and closed the door behind me. 
The sun had not yet risen above the hills when I climbed despondently up onto the deck. We were still docked at Berncastel, the prior night's incident having held us over. A sole police van sat parked on the pier, unoccupied, its windshield frosted. The ship was silent, the decks abandoned. Neither passengers nor crew were about. The morning air hung heavy and chill. No birds chirped or stirred. No distant sound of traffic carried from the bridge at Coos. The streets were empty, the town still. Only the gurgling waters of the Moselle made any noise. I stood at the rail and watched the waters slide past. To say I felt empty would be all I need to say. That was the short of it. No matter the strange circumstances of the drowned sailor, his bizarre warning under the stars, no matter the unexplained connection between Nanami and the first mate, the first mate and the sailor, no matter the haunting dreams suffered since our meeting, I'd acted and still I'd lost. My story remained no different. I was still alone. My misery consumed me. I could think of nothing else. Until his body floated by. The thunk of it against the hull first drew my attention. I stared down, stunned, as the ghoulish cadaver of the first mate bopped beneath. He was naked, brutalized, his skin shred by long rents. He floated face up, and from beneath, snaking out between his legs, there trailed the grisly, ropey tail of his intestines. I wretched, staggered, and vomited over the side of the rail, my mind spun, reeled, I felt dizzy, my vision wobbled, and I retched again. Hung over the rail, my chest heaving, I forced down a new wave of nausea and tried to calm. Moments passed. I pushed myself up, my head throbbed. The body had disappeared. I cast about, searching the waters, hoping it had been a hallucination, as fleeting as my strange dreams. But then I saw it bob again to the surface beside a drifting shelf of ice. It turned slowly, horrifically, as the current spun it out into deeper water. A splash turned my head, and there, clinging to the hull like some noisome, demonic water spider, was the creature from my dream. It slithered worm-like up out of the water, its bulging, ghastly eyes, like the swollen orbs of a blind cavefish, stared fixedly at me. A flopping, slurping mouth opened to reveal row upon row of tiny triangular teeth, and a tentacle tongue lashed out, whipping from side to side. It hissed. But more horrific more fantastically abhorrent than even the sight of this unearthly eldritch monstrosity emerging from the waters below me, was the vision of the soaked and sopping tresses of a blue-black wig 
crept impossibly upon its head. It climbed, and to my utter horror and repulsion began to change, its elongated plastic arms shrinking, and its face, oh, its face, its loathsome, repugnant face pulling, twisting, transforming. It reached up a claw to tug at the trailing strands of wig, pulling it free to reveal the bowl-like depression in its skull, filled with sloshing, bloodied waters. And as the wig slipped down across its metamorphosing visage to fall away, there beneath to my perpetual utter revulsion and horror was the repugnant and alien countenance of Nanami. I reeled, fell back, sprawling across the deck, and she was on me, the weight of her crushing. I couldn't breathe, couldn't move. Only the sensation of the reverberant tremor in her extremities told me I had yet any sense in my body. Slowly, ever so slowly and revoltingly, her face drew near. Her evil eyes, once so alluring and hypnotic, now hideous and alien, stared into mine. Serene, verdant pools no more. But now yellow, icarous windows to hell. They seared away the final remnants of my conscious thought, and I clung desperately like a sailor in a hurricane gale to the mental thread, the consuming frantic need that this was all a horrific dream. Without her wig, I could see the short silver black tufts of her natural hair rigging the truncated crown of her skull. Icy pinkish water sloshed evilly along her cheeks from the bowl above, seeping in pale red rivulets to drip noxiously down onto my face. I groaned. Nanami or the thing I'd known as Nanami, parted its thin lips in a smile. That smile, that hideous, gruesome smile, and I knew myself lost. Paralyzed with terror, I could only watch as that smile drew inexorably near. Blood dappled her chin outlined her teeth. Her breath was a fetid wave of reeking death. Her cheek brushed my own, searing my skin with a blistering froror burn. And just as I could bear the terror no more, as unconsciousness descended with its blessed succor, she whispered blasphemously into my ear. The last shreds of my sanity fled, and as my mind fell away to now torturous black, she stood, dragged her fingers up through her sex, and lovingly rubbed her belly as she stared down, grinning and gloating. A rare lover once told me I dreamed too much, that I wish the waking world were more like those found in the tales I so adore. 
were that only true. For then the horror that slithered into my dreams would be over, snapped shut and trapped within the cover of a book, and I need not live in perpetual terror, besieged by the knowledge that somewhere out within the wide, wretched waters of the world she lays curled within some abyssal hole, nesting and dreaming, awaiting the day she will birth and free upon mankind the accursed clutch that brews now in her vile belly. That was Darren Lavaz's A Touch from the Deep, as read by our old friend, Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Link to his LibriVox page is in the show notes. Thank you, Martin. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell, for now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Plus, we always love to hear from you. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. I look forward to joining you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.